Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. We jump a little out of the Tudor timeline today for this special episode, but don't worry, I'll be back soon with the continuing story of the state versus the theatre. A few weeks ago, one of the Facebook theatre groups that I belong to drew my attention to a one-man play about the creation of the first folio edition of Shakespeare's works. 2023 is the 400th anniversary of the publication of the first folio, and the author of the play Shakespeare Unbound kindly agreed to talk to me about what inspired him to tell the story of the creation of the first folio, and of John Hemmings, actor in The King's Men, financial manager for the company, and editor of The First Folio. Colin David Rees has not only had a lifetime of acting experience behind him, but a lifetime of Shakespeare study too. That started in his family life, where his actor father had a Shakespearean quote for every occasion, and continued with his first professional engagement, where aged just 12, he played Shakespeare's illegitimate son. I've put a link in the show notes to his full biography. When we spoke, Colin gave me more details about how Shakespeare Unbound and his fascination with John Hemmings and the printing of the first folio came about. As you will hear, Colin is about to host a special event that includes a performance of part of Shakespeare Unbound, followed by a Q&A with some notable Shakespeare experts. We'll give you the full details of how you can join that event from the comfort of your own home at the end of the episode, and it's also in the show notes. When I spoke to Colin on Zoom from his home in France, I started by asking him how he came to create Shakespeare Unbound. Well, I've been an actor since uh, my very early years. My father was an actor, mostly radio, and I grew up around Shakespeare um, uh, all my my young life and, uh, in fact, all my professional life. I did a show called uh, A Lover and His Lass, which was a potpourri of uh, love scenes from Shakespeare, starting with um, uh, Romeo and Juliet and then moving on to through um, different love scenes from Shakespeare and ending up with uh, Macbeth and uh, Lady Macbeth, which is perhaps the ultimate love scene of all. Um, and uh, so when I created this show um, with my father as a director, um, one of the things that struck me is that uh, these scenes were complete in and of themselves. They were sort of little playlets all strung together into becoming a full piece of work and um but you take a 12 minute scene out of uh, romeo and juliet and uh, the scene where romeo meets juliet at the ball for example and it it is a complete little scene or little playlet all of its own and uh, so this started to fascinate me and uh, and so i started to do some research and realized something which was um um, which struck me a lot is that we think of early modern theatre as the start of what we now know as theatre. In fact, it was much more the um, culmination of centuries of tradition. And um, these plays that Shakespeare wrought um, were, in fact, 
coming out of a tradition known as interludes, um, where the players would perform in between the courses at a banquet. So you would have a uh, a large banquet, and um, and then in between each course, the players would come out and perform a interlude uh, based on a theme. Um, and so these interludes were um, individual playlets of their own, which, but actually, if you strung them all together, they would make a play. So that that was the first thing that struck me. Um, and the second thing was, as I started to do the research, I started to become fascinated as to what it must have been like to perform these plays when they were new works. And so I started uh, researching the uh, huge body of academic and scholarly work on, on the subject. And um, found myself at Dulwich College, um, which has a series of documents from the period, and that in itself is a story. So I went down to, to see them, and they let me look at the um, at these documents called uh, the Henslow Papers. And uh, there are three things struck me absolutely um, as a practitioner, um, which kind of blew me away. Um, firstly, they performed 150 different plays a year and never performed the same play on two consecutive afternoons. Um, secondly, the only access to the text that the players had was their own cue script. And the only stage directions were on plot sheets, which were posted backstage in the tiring house which had the entrance exit um it's almost certainly where the famous uh, exit pursued by bear comes from <laughs> yeah. and um as i went more and more into this uh, research there was a name that kept coming up who is called john hemmings um John Hemmings, it seems, was the manager of the company. Is in all the court records, for example, it's always uh, his name that is mentioned when payments are made to the company. Payments are made to John Hemmings on behalf of the Chamberlain's man, or later the King's man. Um, so he must have been the money man, um, and kind of the manager and and as i went further and further into the research and uh, i actually managed to get myself a copy of uh, the facsimile of the first folio uh, unfortunately i cannot afford an original <laughs> um, i think the last one sold for 20 million dollars yes that's um, right. <laughs> um but i have the norton facsimile which is from the um uh folger institute in uh, uh, Smithsonian. Again, there was John Hemmings as uh, the principal uh, editor, along with Henry Condell. And uh, so I, I asked a lot of people around me, you know, who was John Hemmings? And uh, less than half the people that I spoke to who were quite well versed in Shakespeare studies actually knew who he was. It turns out that uh, he was, by being responsible for the first folio being printed, he actually saved because 
about 18 of Shakespeare's plays um, because they had not been printed. They were only printed, uh, 18, 18 of them were only printed in quarto versions and some of those quarto versions are a bit suspect. Um, and so the folio is the only uh, printing that was done of the time, it was seven years after Shakespeare's death, of 18 of these plays. And so, again, my imagination started to um, work. Why would, why would Hemmings have done this? Um, and as I, as, as I went further into the research, um, plays as such were not really considered a valid art form, certainly not to the plays written by professional playwrights. Uh, amateur playwrights were uh, usually men of letters and nobles, and they would write for um, the inns of court or whatever, and they considered, they considered their plays to be um, works of art. But uh, the professional playwrights were writing for the playhouses. And um, it would be a bit like the, in modern times, perhaps, the difference between Arthur Miller as a artistic playwright and the scriptwriters for Sex and the City, um, the professional playwrights, writers for the playhouses would have been considered like Hollywood scriptwriters or, um, or as I say, TV series um, scriptwriters. And so why would John Hemmings have gone to all this effort to preserve the plays? Um, and so um, as I have an extremely fertile imagination, I put myself in the... Um, shoes of uh, of John Hemmings and I said to myself well if you are the only person who really recognizes the absolute genius of these plays yes you would move heaven and earth to preserve them for the future and so that is kind of how my play Shakespeare Unbound uh, came about um, in the play John Hemmings comes home with uh, in November 1623 with the very very first printing uh, very very first copy of the first printing of the folio and starts to celebrate in in his house alone at home um, the uh, the result of seven years uh, of uh, of work probably almost certainly in the teeth of a great deal of opposition uh, or indifference perhaps um given that if these plays were created and wrought for the professional um for the playhouses by a professional playwright they were obviously not of any real value i imagined what john hemmings must have felt like uh, when he came home and then in order to make it into a play, um, he gets projected into um, modern times um, through some sort of um, magic. That sounds very intriguing. Perhaps we'd better leave it there, not to sp spoil any plots for anybody. The, the folio itself is a fascinating document, isn't it? Because it is, well, rather, 
in some senses, badly put together. Well, yes. I mean, one of my um, personal experiences was uh, I took my copy of the first folio. I made an appointment with uh, um, the um, 17th century expert at uh, St. Bride's Museum, um, St. Bride's Printing Museum, which is off Fleet Street. And uh, they have their printing presses, which uh, go back to not the 17th century, but uh, certainly the 18th century. Um, and uh, the technology wouldn't have changed much in, in, in that hundred years. It was only when steam presses came in that the, the whole concept of... Uh, of printing um changed and um so i made an appointment with the 17th century expert and when i arrived he wasn't there because he was off uh he had a cold or he wasn't available so um they sent down the 18th century uh expert and he came and he grabbed their copy of the facsimile, and I have mine. I think theirs is from the um, British Museum, British Library, and mine was from the um, Folger Institute, as I said. And um, and so he said, "I'm I'm 18th century. I I deal with the 18th century. I've never really looked at the 17th century. And in fact, the Folio is one of those books that I've never really looked at." Um, it's always been on my must-have-a-look list. And so we sat down with uh, the two facsimiles, and, um, which, of course, are not exactly the same. And uh, he looked at it, and his first reaction was, oh, my God, what a mess. And uh, as an expert on the, uh, on the printing practices of the time, he said, he said, look at this, look at this, look at this, and, all, and, and pointed all, to all sorts of errors and mistakes and uh, um, sloppy work. And he was, he was quite shocked because uh, the most iconic book in English literature was actually thrown together by, uh, um, apparently was thrown together in, in a rather slapdash uh, fashion. Um, when I explained to him that uh, it was put together um, over a period of two years um, by um, Hemings and Condell and uh, certain um, monies that they had managed to accumulate in order to finance it, uh, he said, ah, that makes sense, because what would have happened looking at this is they would have printed a page and then put it to one side while they, um, while the shop, the printing shop, uh, printed something that was actually going to bring in money, because obviously this was not going to bring in any money until it was actually finished. And we all know the um, relationship between capital investment and uh, return um, on on <laughs> sales, um, and the delay between the two, um, and uh, so. Yeah, and and in the meantime, while they were printing it, they obviously had to. Um, well, William Jagged and later his son Isaac uh, obviously had to pay his typesetters and his uh, press operators. Um, so this project could not have had the full attention of the staff in the um, 
in in the print shop. So print they would print a page, and uh, I mean, just the sheer statistics about the the folio are uh, astounding. Uh, there are eight hundred and ninety pages, I think, and so each page has two columns. Uh, each column has about sixty lines. Each line has about 45 to 50 characters. So you've got 800, nearly 900 pages of two columns per page. So that's 1,800 columns. Multiply that by the uh, 60 lines in each column and the 45 to 50 characters in each line. And uh, there are there were about four and a half million uh, letters, pieces of lead set into the press, which went to create the the first folio. Uh, yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? The the, the scale of the project. Yeah. So we have this doc, this publication that has become so important to us because without it, there are several of the plays that we just wouldn't yeah, have. Or so, yeah, and the whole thing was put together. We think on on spec at Hemmings's own cost, uh, at least to an extent, to an extent and could so yeah. easily have just never got finished. Yes, um, especially as William Jaggard, the owner of the shop, started to get very sick towards uh, the end of the two-year process. Um, and uh, fortunately, his son, Isaac, uh, who took over the um, business after William Jaggard died in the summer of 1623, um, Isaac Jaggard took over and presumably um, was enthused enough to really put an effort into um, getting it done, getting it finished. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason for that is probably financial. Is you know they'd invested all this money in uh, in 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 printing it. Uh, uh, <laughs> let's get it out there so we can start to get some money back for it. I mean, there were about 900 copies printed and uh, an unbound copy would have sold for a, for the best part of a pound. Um, I think I'm right in saying that 900 copies is a pretty big print run for the time. Enormous. And obviously of, of an enormous work yeah. as well. So this was something that wasn't for um, uh, an average punter in the street. This was a, something that was going to, no. I, I guess, the aristocratic uh, the, end of the, society. The aristocratic, the upper, the, the upper echelons of society. And it would have been a, a coffee table book. You know, a book for people to read certainly would never have been even remotely contemplated as being a um, performance text, you know, a text that people use to perform from. Uh, so it's the beginning of the um, the idea of Shakespeare being uh, something that, that is read rather than something that is performed. Um, but very... I mean, it's very limited, although, you know, um, it obviously was successful because there was a second folio printed. Um, so obviously the first folio was uh, um, was successful and sold out. Mm. And so there was, it would, it would appear there was, uh, there perceived to be a sufficient market to, to, to print a second folio. Um, in the first folio, 
uh, Pericles uh, does not appear, and mm -hmm. um, there are some copies of the first folio which are still extant, which don't have time in Athens. Um, and right. there are various reasons for that one one is that somebody actually had the rights to time of athens when they started printing um and it was only about it was only after they started printing that they managed to get the rights to it um the whole concept of copyright was extremely extremely vague but if if a book had been printed then um uh, the editor the publisher um would have had certain rights over it over the text not being printed elsewhere um and that was probably bribing the stationer's company um so if you could over bribe the stationer's uh this the stationer's uh, uh company you could probably get the rights or you could buy the rights the uh, the Folger Institute uh, is named after a man called Henry Folger, who lived to, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, he was a Texas oil millionaire. And back in those days, being a Texas oil millionaire meant that you had a ranch or a farm, and suddenly they discovered oil under your ranch or your farm. And so instantly you became a millionaire because you had the rights. And so um, he was obsessed with Shakespeare. And uh, so he spent, once once he became a millionaire, he spent most of his life um, going around Europe buying anything that was remotely connected to Shakespeare. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think it went as far as egg cups. And, and he managed to amass a huge number of uh, first folios in secondhand bookshops and... Um, and you know they weren't going for twenty million dollars a time. Then um, it was partly because of him that they now go for that price because uh, he pretty much cornered the market. And so one of the benefits of that is that they could be compared. And there are no no two folios that are the same, which uh, my friend from the St. Bride's Museum explained uh, to me why. Um, because they would print a page, <clears throat> look at it, and say, oh, gosh, there's an E upside down. Um, oh, that word isn't spelled right. Um, and so they would make the correction, and then they print the page. They print a second copy of the page, and they see, oh gosh, there's still uh, an an error here. So, you know, but they wouldn't throw away the the pages with the errors on the paper. It was much too expensive, um, and so these uh, pages with errors would get bound into uh, into the copies, but of course, totally at random. We really have to put ourselves in a different mindset, don't we, to to think that they would even do that. I mean, today it would be uh, a printer would, would not let that happen. Yeah. But the cost of paper, the expense of of change of making those changes and correcting everything, you simply couldn't afford not to use that slightly bad copy. And presumably the same went for if the printing wasn't quite as good as it should be or something like that. Yeah. Um 
and uh, smudges and uh, and yeah, and because the paper was moved because it were, before it was absolutely dry uh, um, and so on. Now, if 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 it was something like the King James uh, organizing a printing of the Bible, then that would be a totally different mindset. Yes, of course. Um, but this is this is a couple of uh, actors or company of actors on. Uh, pretty limited budget putting together a um a collection of plays which uh quite a lot of the intelligentsia can considered to be absolute rubbish anyway um one of my favorite ironies of of the whole thing is the bodleian library now so proudly being a shakespearean resource and uh, um and having this amazing collection of shakespearean shakespeare's and and early modern plays um sir thomas bodley who founded the bodleian library in um, at, at the time that Shakespeare was writing, was adamantly against having plays in his library. Uh, he sent a letter to the stationer's company saying, please send me one copy of every book that gets printed, with the exception of almanacs and plays, <laughs> which are naught but baggage books. Ooh, ouch. Um, <laughs> So uh, that's how that's how plays were were viewed by the intelligentsia. Yeah. He wanted this uh, um, all inclusive library, um, with the exception of plays. And so, when the Bodleian, when the people, you know, when the the, um, the custodians and the librarians at the Bodleian Library now now boast about. Uh, um, their sh incredible Shakespeare uh, resource, but I can't uh, help but uh, have a little wry smile because, uh, yeah, I mean, and if he hadn't been so prejudiced, how many, how many more would they have had? Well, quite. Yes. That is also because I mean, in extant documents, there are something like about five thousand four hundred plays that are mentioned, of which about. Uh, uh, about 150, 200 survive, mm. of which 36, 37, 38, or even 39, depending on what you expect, what, what you accept, are Shakespeare. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's an huge percentage of, uh, of, of what has survived from the period. I mean, out of uh, out out of one hundred and fifty, he thirty six, thirty seven, thirty eight are are from one author, and that's down to my alter ego, my hero, um, John Hemmings, who we have, as I've said before, we have a lot to thank uh, for saving that, and and this is really what your play is exploring, I think, isn't it? The yeah, uh, how he did it and why he did it as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and also it's a bit of a um, a biography of Shakespeare as well. Um, uh, I've done a huge amount of research into the known facts about Shakespeare, eschewing all fantasies and uh, 
other fairy tales and i've stuck absolutely to the facts as they are known so definitely something for, for anyone who has even half an interest in shakespeare i would say yeah um now you i know you've performed um, it in many places around the world over the years yes but we also have it available on streaming yes yes um we have a website shakespeareunbound.com and uh, on the website there is a link to buy your own personal uh, licensed copy um you click on that you and and you get the right to streaming whenever you want um it's not limited it's not limited to time uh it's not limited to the number of times you can watch it i mean many of uh, many of the people who have watched it have said, oh, I've watched, I, w- I watched uh, 20 minutes and then I came back to it uh, a couple of days later and watched 20 more minutes and so on. So so you can do that. What you can't do is download it. Okay, that sounds excellent. Uh, but also you have a very special streaming event coming up soon. Yes, to launch the event, because of course this year is the 400th anniversary of um, of of the printing of the photo. It's the 400th anniversary of what, in fact, takes place in the play. So in order to celebrate that, we have a launch event on Eventbrite. On the, um, we're doing it twice, uh, once on the 18th of March and once on the 20th of March. What you will get for free, or donation if you so desire, is a 30-minute cut-down version followed by a Q, Q&A. I have uh, some... Shakespeare experts uh, who will be on the panel to be on the Q&A to give their impression, their their, um, knowledge. Um, One person that I'm very pleased to have is uh, a man called Dennis McCarthy, who has written a book called Thomas North. The whole story of Thomas North and his relationship to Shakespeare is another podcast. But uh, what uh, Dennis McCarthy has discovered and uncovered um, is quite extraordinary. To my mind, changes quite a lot about how we view Shakespeare or how we should view Shakespeare. Yeah, well, well, that will be fascinating to hear from him and others uh, on that evening. I'll, I'll certainly be there watching from home. And uh, I hope you know many listeners now will also uh, want to join. That sounds like a really interesting evening of Shakespeare discussion and a performance from yourself. My thanks to Colin for his time and for sharing just a bit of his encyclopedic knowledge. To reiterate his last point there, you can get a personal licensed copy of Shakespeare Unbound to stream from the Shakespeare Unbound website. And if you're interested in joining either of the special streaming event sessions, you can do this via eventbrite.com. There are two options, the 18th of March at 7.30pm in the UK, that's 8.30pm in Europe, 2.30pm on the East Coast US and 11.30am for the West Coast US. Then on the 20th of March, the start time is 11am in the UK. I've put a link to Eventbrite where you can see all the details again and the Shakespeare Unbound website in the show notes. As Colin mentioned, you can register and attend for free, but a donation to offset costs would, I'm sure, be much appreciated. In our conversation, Colin mentioned Dulwich College and the Henslow Papers. And if you'd like to know more about these, there are several extra podcast episodes on Henslow, his diary, and the life of the actor and benefactor of Dulwich College, Ned Allen, all on the podcast Patreon members' website. 
Again, I've put a link in the show notes and there are further details on the podcast website. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.